of Scripps Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to the Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. What we have been doing is we've been starting with some of the quirkier stories. This was the year that Barack Obama became president of the United States. And yet I'm just going to gloss straight through that. I'm going to bypass that. <laughs> that That's, emotional moment that, yeah. that had <laughs> the members of the black community crying tears for the first African-American president. Listen. We don't have time to yeah. go to the nitty gritty <laughs> of that presidential race between Barack Obama and, well, it was Hillary Clinton yep. in the primaries, wasn't mm-hmm. it? In yep. the, the Democratic, not for the Democratic nominee. And then I forget, because uh, George Bush was coming to the end of his tenure, was he not? Was it Mitt Romney? Oh, no. Was it Mitt Romney? Mitt Romney. No, no, or that was Al the Gore. next one. Oh, John McCain. Surely. Yes. John McCain. Yes. There we have it. There right. You go. Okay. Yep. We bring you all the, the latest <laughs> and most up to date information here on Off Script. The world, of course, was plunged into financial crisis in 2008. And in May, as a bizarre foretelling of this, was a Wall Street restaurant boasting the costliest burgers in New York. A $175 patty made of Kobe beef, black truffles, seared foie gras, and flecks of gold leaf. So, oh, dear. Um, Heather Tierney at her Wall Street burger shop said, Wall Street has good days and bad days. We wanted to have something special if you have a really good day on Wall Street. That wins the bad timing award because in September of that year, uh, the Lehman Brothers Bank collapsed. Merrill Lynch collapsed with it. The liquidity crisis of um, exposure to packaged subprime loans, which if you've seen the movie Big Short, mm-hmm. you'll know a lot more about. I don't know much about this, but it uh, prompted a global crisis of absurd proportions. And prior to that, it's in a way, I mean, people got away with with horrendous crimes against... Uh, it makes me very angry. It, made my, it makes my blood boil. It really does. Uh, to think about how much people got away with and just, you know, not too long after devastating people's life savings and ruining people's lives, how there were bankers once again having mm. bonuses and, you know, the, the world, like. The world needed a reality check in 2008 because there was a bank in Kazakhstan offering a diamond-encrusted credit card for clients with incomes over $300,000. A jeweler in Tokyo kept busy selling 13-piece tableware sets made of gold for $1 million aimed at newly rich Chinese customers. And in Germany, the crisis sparked an unlikely revival of interest in Karl Marx, the founding father of communism, um, because Das Kapital... His heavy analysis of capitalism became a top seller in 2008. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me somehow. It seems fitting. I also see that bailout was crowned the word of the year that's over right. in the US. Yeah, that's right. Um, now, this is a record I would dispute. Listen to this. In China, the world's tallest man, Bao Hun, became the world's tallest father with the birth of his first child. And I'm sorry, <laughs> but... Is that really an additional record to his ledger? He's already the world's tallest man. Is he going to go to Guinness and say, guys, I'm the world's tallest father now. I've just had a kid. Yeah, and let's say he's a farmer. Is he also the world's tallest farmer? (laughs) I'm the world's world's tallest computer programming student. Exactly. I'm the world's tallest second child. (laughs) Where's the end to this? In Italy, meanwhile, a man accused of being a mafioso got out of prison after a court ruled he was too overweight for jail. (laughs) Guards said the 210-kilo man could not fit through the bathroom door. And he got out of a prison sentence. Because he couldn't fit into the bathroom? 
Apparently so. I mean, I guess what are you going to do if somebody can't get into the bathroom? They can't be in prison. But that's that's shocking. I don't know how to react to that information. An Australian outback mayor won the country's outrageous sexism award for urging women who were, and I quote here, beauty disadvantaged to proceed to a town called Mount Isa where men outnumber women five to one. Oh, my God. 2008 was not long enough ago for that to be uh, something that happened. Listen, we know full well that that could pop up on the kickback uh, in 2021 zone. But yeah, those are just some of the, the weirder headlines in 2008. We're going to go movies and there were an absolute load of belters. Now, in some years, it's difficult to pick a favourite. In this year, zone, spoil for choice. I mean, seriously, this was one of the few years in a long time that I thought I really am struggling. I'm torn in four different directions, not two. Mm. But there were four potential contenders here. And you that went I for chosen. Liam Neeson's Taken in the end, I assume? <laughs> that is a movie I will never in my entire life watch. Never. Oh, come on. But nice try. Uh, well, well, I might be able to persuade you otherwise because we've it's, got a little clip. Yeah, that's definitely not going on the list. All right, then. What have we chosen then? I mean, it, I had to go with this one. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it might be the best animated movie ever created. It is, of course, Wally. His name is Wally. After all these years, he's developed one little glitch a personality. He's extremely curious. <laughs> And just a little bit lonely. But all that is about to change. I'd like to say that having watched this trailer, yeah. I, I wonder whether the makers of Johnny Five actually took Wally to court because Wally looks an awful lot like Johnny Five. What is a Johnny Five? Johnny Five, the short circuit. Okay. The, the you, robot you guys, from you guys the, have ref referenced Short Circuit before. Yeah, the sort of late 80s movies right. um, set in New York with Johnny Five. Okay. <laughs> All right. You watch Wally, I'll watch Johnny Five. We'll, right. we'll compare Short Circuit, we'll compare notes. But okay. no, this is a movie, that trailer, I have to admit, made it sound really childish. But it's, I think when I first found out about it, you find out that the first 40 minutes or so, even maybe longer, right. don't actually include any dialogue. And you think about how creative you have to be and how compelling something has to be for you to be able to stay with something when there's absolutely no dialogue for that long. Wow. And just a single character, really, for most of it. Um, and it really is. It's just I think you'd like it also because it's a bit of a commentary on the way that society is headed about sort of greed and excess okay. and gluttony. Okay. And yeah. Um, and, and sort of a potential, in a weird way, a dystopian future. All right. But it, it, you it's sold kind it. Of, it's kind of sweet. You've sold it. A sweet robot at the center of it. Okay. Yeah. There's a very nice little synopsis that zone. <laughs> uh, the voice of Wally, by the way, um, is actually linked to the voice of R2-D2, apparently. Ben Burt um, is best known for his work on Star Wars. The distinctive chatter that you can hear with R2-D2 is taken across. He's worked on films like E.T. and the Indiana Jones series as well. No way. Yeah. Two of the best androids. And apparently the director for Wally, Andrew Stanton, got the inspiration for his design when someone handed him a pair of binoculars at a baseball game. Huh. This just gives you an insight into what he's like because he said, I missed the entire innings. I just turned the thing around and started staring at it. <laughs> and I started making it go sad and then happy <laughs> and then mad and then sad. And I remember doing that as a kid with my dad's binoculars and I said, it's all there 
love this. That sounds this. bonkers. I love this. That is so creative. There you go. So, uh, Andrew Stanton, that was the inspiration for Wally. We'll give you uh, producer Rogers' nomination. This is a great little film noir, this. It's called In Bruges. It stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Take a listen to the clip. You were going to kill me. You were going to kill yourself. I've lived. No, you're what? not. What? I'm not an out in you are. How's that fair? Where'd you get that gun? Let me see it. Silence of two. Nice. Mine's a girl's gun. Okay, it's about a couple of assassins. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, in, no. In Bruges. Right. That, that's the name of the film, and that's where they are. And um, Colin Farrell plays a gun for hire who's having a change of heart about the profession. But it's a darkly funny... It's it's a black comedy in, in every sense of the word. And um, I think Ralph Fiennes is in it as well. Mm. It's a really, really good film if you're in the mood for something very different. I'm getting a sense of Roger's film taste here. Mm. There's like consistency year on year, I feel like. Also, what happened to Colin Farrell? Assassins and zombies seem to crop up yeah, a lot in yeah. Roger's film choices. And yeah, Colin Farrell, who has appeared in some of the worst films ever made as well, Phone Booth being one of them. He was brilliant in that, I have to say. Um, the one I've gone for, I could have gone for a number, actually, like, like you, Sone. I I could have easily picked The Wrestler, which we will hear mm -hmm. a clip from in just a few moments. But I've gone for this one. Uh, this is brilliant. This is called Frost Nixon. It stars Frank Langella and Michael Sheen. Great cameo from Kevin Bacon as well. And it's just a riveting duel between a washed-up TV presenter, a British TV presenter, and, of course, President, at the time, former President Nixon. Take a listen. The man who has committed the greatest felony in American history will never stand trial. I've had an idea for an interview, Richard Nixon. You're a talk show host. I spent yesterday watching you interview the Bee Gees. When they terrific. Why would I want to talk to David Frost? I got half a million dollars. Really? This entire project is a joke. I do hope that isn't coming out of your own pocket. I wish my pockets were that deep. I'm in this for everything I've got. Just a brilliant. The script and the writing and the, the chemistry between those two was just so engrossing. I think that you can take that little moment of movie history and make it so compelling. I mean, this is one of those movies I watched in the cinema and I remember being just completely gripped mm. by it from beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah, the Huffington Post, incidentally, not impressed with the inaccuracies of the film, despite admitting that it was great drama. The, the paper said the film's plot is a contrivance. Its telling is so riddled with departures from what actually happened as to be fundamentally dishonest. And its climactic moment is purely and simply a lie. Literary license in the name of drama or entertainment is one thing. The issue comes down to what one is taking license with and the degree of license being taken. Does that bother you, though? I mean, no. I kind of assume with a movie like this... Yeah. I listen, if it's based on an actual event, then it needs to be somewhat sort of faithful to the, to the source material. Here's the struggle, is that you're in a sense rewriting history, because more people are going to remember the movie version yeah. of history than the actual history, so I do understand that responsibility. But for the most part, you're watching a movie, you want to be entertained, well, you kind of know that it's not going to be exactly, that they're going to add the drama where the, they need to. The Guardian said in the UK, it took the opposite stance saying, Frost Nixon may stretch the truth, but isn't that just art imitating life? Ron Howard's account of David Frost's post-Watergate TV interviews isn't always faithful to fact, 
but then neither was Richard Nixon. I love that. Which is a great line. Love that. Um, the Dark Knight, of course, was released oh. in 2008. Christopher Nolan, who famously didn't make sequels until The Dark Knight. He directed films like Memento and Insomnia, and he was always against doing follow-ups, but after re-envisaging Batman in the 2005 film Batman Begins, he couldn't stop thinking about his version of Batman would respond to the introduction of the Joker. A year ago, these uh, cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. <laughs> Here's my card. Oh, just the best Batman villain of all time. Mm. Really. I mean, I know that you prefer the older Batman movies. No, no, no I, I do. I, I guess, again, depends but, on when you watch them. I, I remember watching the, the ones with Jack Nicholson as, as a kid or the, the Joker, the, the movie 1989 Batman with uh, uh, Michael Keaton and, mm -hmm. and Jack Nicholson. But um, some amazing insight into Heath Ledger's method in this film. He actually locked himself away in a hotel room and experimented with voices and mannerisms until he developed something he was satisfied with. His inspirations were Sex Pistols icons, Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious, mm -hmm. and the anarchist character Alex from Stanley Kubrick's classic film A Clockwork Orange that is going dark have yeah. you seen A Clockwork Orange I've not no oh. but it is apparently extremely dark and quite terrifying yes uh, Heath Ledger incidentally was the only man on Christopher Nolan's list to play the joke he said when I heard he was interested there was never any doubt you could see it in his eyes said Nolan people were a little baffled by the choice it's true but I've never had such a simple decision as a director this completely surprises me because yes was Heath Ledger absolutely brilliant in the role and absolutely embodied it in a way that nobody else could. Yes, but did you know that going in? Because what did we know Heath Ledger for before this particular well, performance? Mountain. Yeah. There was Brokeback Mountain and he did 10 Things I Hate About You is what I remember him for. And a couple yeah. other kind of smaller films, I feel like. I didn't think he was sort of a big name as a serious Javier actor. Bardem, for example, would have been an right. obvious choice. Right. I, did, I would have not thought of Heath Ledger as an obvious choice or for this even, at all. Or um, even... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who yes. played it in the, 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 the recent movie, yeah. would be an understandable choice. But Heath Ledger, of course, as we know, performance of the year, arguably. And we'll get to another one, Mickey Rourke, as uh, his turn of Randy the Ram Robinson. Um, Kevin's been in touch to say it's a bit harsh to describe Sir David Frost as washed up. He wasn't Sir David Frost back then. He was actually struggling, at mm. least according to the film, Kevin, he was struggling as, I think he was a TV show host for um, maybe an Australian chat show I think it was the film depicts him as a man in the kind of last chance saloon of his career he yeah. needed Nixon as much as Nixon needed him so perhaps maybe the wrong choice of words from me but uh, he definitely wasn't the distinguished broadcaster at that time that he later became so many good films and we've inspired Kevin to look into those in fact last week we did No Country for Old Men in 2007 a film I'd not seen with uh, Javier de Bardem Josh Brolin Tommy Lee Jones unbelievable film yeah. Unbelievable film. I looked it up on Amazon and um, I watched it last week. A truly disturbing portrait of a psychopath. I'm surprised it. you haven't seen it. That's, that film is so up your oh alley. Oh my God, yeah. And the cinematography of West Texas as mm -hmm. well. It was a, a true classic. Um, so yeah, hopefully Time Capsule is giving you a bit of inspiration to, to maybe go back into the well and dig up some films from yesteryear. But The Wrestler definitely deserves, if, if Heath Ledger's Joker was the performance of the year, I feel like Mickey Rourke gave him a run for his money as the past his prime wrestler Randy the Ram Robinson. If you 
Have you a daughter? No, I'm a daughter. She don't like me very much. You should call her. What do you want from me? I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat, and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. Two words. Three. Match. Bring it. You know, with a little luck, this could be my ticket back on top. Of course, the music there of the brilliant boss. Bruce Springsteen uh, supporting Mickey Rourke, who just absolutely nailed it as Randy the Ram Robinson, who was kind of into his 50s, a fading star, Mm. and yet still putting himself through the ringer every Saturday night in the wrestling ring um, against another, uh, another sort of cast of kind of equally kind of Stars of yesteryear, if you like, when wrestling was at its peak in the 1980s. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I think a lot of the, the, the wrestlers from the, the, the industry, I think um, even the likes of Shane Michaels had, had a lot to say about it. They said that while some of the portrayals of, of the life outside of the industry was perhaps inaccurate, a lot of it rang true. Yeah, I mean, we spoke to a wrestler from the 80s. I mean, we've spoken to, to wrestlers actually of different genres. We spoke to Diamond Dallas Page, who was more of that early genre of yeah. WWE and uh, wrestling entertainment. He told us that some of the people that he had wrestled with were people that he saw as inspirations for this and that there was some real truth to, I, I guess, the complexity of, and I think what's special about this movie is you see this guy who's just so desperate to be loved by other people yeah. and then just so disappointing well, to his immediate... he's desperate for connection. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know... He, with his daughter, uh, yeah. he just put, he just he he portrays someone who's just fallen into such a space in his life where he's very unhappy and he doesn't have the connections that that he needs and he's lost touch with people and, and wrestling is kind of his release from all of that. Yeah, he li- he leads a very depressed life and and as he comes to the realization that his wrestling is needs needs to stop because of his health, it's just that oh, it's so it's a well great done. film. It's such a brilliant film. I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Uh, the other films in the year, The Hurt Locker, um, Taken. Um, I'm not going to put you through that. But Liam Neeson, incidentally, just just a quick one. He took up the role because, get this, he wanted to spend four months living in Paris learning martial arts. He said he wanted to do more physical stuff. He thought he thought that it would be a side road from his so-called career. He said he thought it would go straight to video, but it got great word of mouth. And Liam said he was stunned. Incidentally, the franchise has spawned two sequels, grossing a combined $926 million at the box office. And from that, it's become the thing that defines him in yeah, his acting career massively yeah um we have to talk about Slumdog Millionaire. That was a sensation when it came out. It People was. were so overwhelmed with it. Absolutely. Yeah, it was incredible. And it was something completely different as yes. well. I think that's what it was. I remember seeing that with my parents, actually, at the cinema. Um, Quantum of Solace uh, was the next James Bond installment starring Daniel Craig. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Iron Man. Robert Downey Jr. Mm. So many incredible films. We've seen films since 99 on a bit of a slippery slope right. into kind of, into sort of blah. Into, yeah. into, into very bland sequels, franchises, remakes, reboots, etc., etc., And that's a trend that I think has continued for the last 20 years. But 2008, a shining beacon amongst that. Some really good films. Yeah, we were commenting that, that 99 is known as the best year of film. But this is kind of up there. This Running is reaching up there with 99. In fact, when you look at how original these stories are and how yeah. different they are, I think that's what really stands out.
In the world of TV, one of my favourite TV shows, one of the shows considered to be among the greatest of all time. I know that you and Chris are not necessarily as big of a fan, but in January of 2008, Breaking Bad made its debut. It did not premiere to over-the-top ratings, but over five seasons, written by Vince Gilligan, it morphed into a television phenomenon, thanks in large part to word of mouth and actually the increasing popularity of binge-watching on platforms. Take a listen. Chemistry is, well, technically, chemistry is the study of matter. But I prefer to see it as the study of change. You understood what I've just said to you? Yes. Lung cancer. Inoperable. Why are you here? But you know the business. And I know the chemistry. Well, and it's just an extraordinarily original premise. Exactly. You've never seen anything show. like it before. And, it, you know, the, the morality, the, the gray areas that this show explores, where the, the kind of the gist of it is, the central premise is that this man starts out trying to do something good and ends up doing something very, very, very <laughs> bad over the course of the five seasons that it runs. And he, he, he convinces himself every time something abhorrent happens yeah. that he's all doing it for the benefit, for the, for the greater good of sort of providing for his family after, after he's gone. I mean, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, I recommend it wholeheartedly. If you have seen it, just a little stat for you. Jesse Pinkman, played by Aaron Paul, who is, who is kind of the counterpart to Walter White, played by Brian Cranston, brilliantly by Brian Cranston he was actually and I just found this out today he wasn't supposed to live past season one um, but uh, he was never intended to be a major character they quickly realised and I pardon the pun here the chemistry yes. between Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul was what was going to be the lifeblood of the show and um, after a couple of episodes they had a massive rethink on yeah. where the show was going as a result it's, I mean you can't do that that show without him I mean he was such so much the life of it and uh, I'm also seeing that Brian Cranston wasn't originally thought to be a lead role in this. And it is. He was also unexpected, wasn't he? Because before this, he did Malcolm in the Middle, like a family sitcom. Yeah. And he was a homely dad kind of character. One of the executives said, we still had the image of Brian shaving his body in Malcolm in the Middle and we couldn't get it out of our heads. (laughs) How could he play this malevolent super genius or super villain in Breaking Bad? But, I mean, could you imagine anyone else playing that role? I mean, he he absolutely was amazing as Walter White. Uh, Right. We're going to move on to music very quickly in our countdown of all the great things that happen in pop culture in 2008. And there's some pretty good songs we've, we've weeded out this year. Um, we've gone a little bit alternative with our selections. This is from Rog, Vampire Weekend, A-Punk, second single from the debut self-titled album. He's described it as a lot of fun. He said he had this ca- album on repeat in the car, a fresh sound rooted in guitar music. Take a listen. Vampire Weekend fan? I was Sorry? at the time. I can't say that I've listened to them much since 2008, but they Oxford Comma as well, yeah. Okay. Definitely of that era. All right. You? Uh, yeah, so-so. Not, yeah. not a massive fan. Not a massive fan. But that's Vampire Weekend. That's uh, Roger's choice of song of 2008. Now, in Chris McCarty's absence, you've <laughs> taken it upon yourself to go all dance music on us. You know, I didn't think I would do this, but genuinely, I'm not a, f- I'm not a huge fan of dance, of EDM. Um, 
But like, especially that that kind of poppy dance music that we mm. hear of yeah. the early 2000s. I'm really not a fan. But this I can get behind. This is Eric Pride's. Takes you back to your raving days, does it so? <laughs> exactly. Okay. You know me so well. Yeah, okay. It's just one of those anthems, right? It just it doesn't need much more than no, that. And it just that gets you in a mood. A dance floor filler. Uh, I've gone for a bit of a random one. Um, Jack White of the White Stripes, of course, mm-hmm. had this little little side project called The Raconteurs. And this was, I think, their second album, uh, the brilliantly named Consolers of the Lonely. He teamed up with Brendan Benson and Jack Lawrence. And this is from that album you don't understand me white stripes in it but yeah. it's not the white stripes yeah, it's totally. weird but it's a totally different style of music and i much prefer it actually to the white stripes so many good songs that were launched in 2008 as the kind of digital age of music really took off this was pitchfork media's number one track of 2008 it was called blind hercules and love affair to see you now Pitchfork said it's sturdy rhythm, infectious horn section, rumbling bass line, and an appropriately vampy vocal uh, cut across all sections and tastes. Sonor, you a fan? I love this. I can't say that I even recall this from 2008. Really? But listening to it now... Yeah, I would. I would totally listen get on board. To this. Get on board with it. Yeah, definitely. Um, right, MGMT. Time to pretend was another big one. Some amazing stories uh, from this one. Uh, let's play a little clip of it first. might be my favourite music song facts that we've done in the time capsule. MGMT member Andrew Van Wingarden told Inside Bay Area that the keyboard melody on Time to Pretend was inspired by the dance of our pet praying mantis, (laughs) Quivilla, who was named after our experimental music professor who advised us on our senior project. (laughs) There is so much to unpack in that and I love all of it. Yeah, I love the way you name your pet praying mantis after your music professor. Just says so much about the professor. Uh. And when MGMT MT performed this on The Late Show with David Letterman. They were clad in full-length capes. Van Wingarden told the Manchester Evening News, he didn't even come over afterwards and shake our hands. I think everyone was a little weirded (laughs) out by it. Um, Now, Duffy um, released a great record this year, and um, this is a track from it. Beautiful voice. Oh, it was a really. I'm trying to remember. I think it was just called Duffy, actually. The, 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 the album. 
Um, it had some amazing tracks on it, uh, Warwick Avenue being another one. And she said of that song, she said that um, uh, it, it was down as a template and she was staying in a hotel and she remembered feeling the song in the middle of the night that she had to get it written and put down on paper right away. Mm. She was quite tormented by it and... Um, she uh, she said that she had to sing it the next day and be really clever with her phrasing. A couple of days after that, she said she heard it back and was very grateful that I realised what to do. The agony of that sleepless night was worth it. It's hard to turn a song around if you don't approach it in the right way. It was one mm. of those things where you just you have an idea, you've got to commit it to paper right away, even if it's three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and you think about, I mean, an artist would do that. Mm. Did you ever wake up with an idea about <laughs> off script to commit it to paper three o'clock in the morning? I'm already up at three o'clock in the morning, so it doesn't apply to me, Rob. Uh, Rock Ferry is Roger's, Roger's telling us. That's the album, the right. name of the album, Rock Ferry. If you haven't heard Duffy, I would recommend looking up Rock Ferry. Really good album. Um, and then this one, you're a big fan of this, Soane. Uh, this might have been a challenger for Eric Prids. Yeah, I think if I had known about it, I might have picked this as my selection. I mean, this was, I know you're a fan of some of their earlier work than this, but this is the first time Kings of Leon was on the map for me. And this was the big song that they had in this year. You know that I This was when they transitioned from a kind of quirky, uh, bluesy, deep south rock mm. band to a stadium-filling kind of mega band. Right. Um, they went a the, little bit more commercial pop. Well, it was sort of, it was just more anthemic. Their right. songs were just more, they were classic stadium-filling songs. And we, we actually saw, um, I went down to see them in Abu Dhabi. They How were, was it? It was, it was, you know what, it wasn't great, actually. Really? Um, I was a big fan of theirs, right. and uh, and they didn't do an encore. They kind of flounced off without much of a sort of goodbye or any kind of. Look, I mean, I'm you know they're they're paid to come over and perform and do the, do the songs that they're that, that they're kind of contracted to do. But you know, you expect them to come on and just maybe they hadn't played one particular song, and I forget which one it was now. But yeah. I was expecting that to be the encore, right? And they just left, oh. and, and it just felt that's left, disappointing. I just felt a bit flat from it. Mm. I just didn't feel like you know when you can tell a band's heart and soul is in it and yeah. when uh, when I, I know you were at the same concert The Killers in Abu oh, Dhabi so good. it was such a great performance because they really just lived and breathed it whereas I just didn't feel like these guys their hearts were in it but then again it could have been the end of a long tour might have been mitigating circumstances um, Kanye West was still at the top of his game in 2008 zone and this was a track from his uh, album he was pretty enamoured with it it's fair to say when he was experimenting with auto-tune. Yes, exactly. He it was, was his foray into kind of trying to sing as opposed to just rapping, isn't That's it? That's right. Um, he said it was no longer hip-hop, but pop art. Um, he said any rapper would have loved to rap on Heartless. Um, it's a perfect rap beat, he called it. And the hook is like straight Broadway melody. The message is incredible. He's really talking it down, isn't he? In the night I hear them talk, the coldest story ever told. It could be an opera, says Kanye. <laughs> Um, so again, never a man who would miss out on a hyperbole given half the chance. But 2008, it stands down as one of the greatest sporting years of all time. 
Usain Bolt announced himself himself to the world at the Olympics in Beijing with two scintillating world record sprints in the 100 and 200 metres. Michael Phelps won a record eight gold medals in the pool. Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal played what many still consider is to be the greatest tennis match of all time. And Tiger Woods won the US Open on a broken leg. Unbelievable. You said that earlier, the broken leg. Mm. You're going to need to explain that to me. I will explain that to you in due course, Zone, but do you want to hear a recap of Usain Bolt's 100-meter sprint? Absolutely. Let's hear Here it. Here we go. And a fair start. A Safa Pound. Usain Bolt is also out well. Here they come down the track. Usain Bolt sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68. The wind is okay. New world record. Easy was that? Tom Hammond. The 100 meters is running a straight line, but Usain Bolt just turned the corner, and the line starts behind him. It no longer is good enough to be sub-10. They have now gone into the realm of video game times, 9.69 for Usain Bolt, and he made it look the commentary matching the level <laughs> yes. of the race there. They have gone yeah. into the realm of video game times. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Do you guys remember watching it? It must come on. It, it yeah. stopped the world in its tracks, Usain Bolt. Yeah, because I was quite a fan of Asafa Paola. I just liked, I liked him. I always wanted him to win. And just seeing Bolt come into it was just unreal. Six it's foot five. Um, not built like a sprinter. Doesn't look like a sprinter. And he just, he had the charisma, he had the star power. You could just tell, just looking at him, that this was a guy that was just going to completely change his sport. Um, and it was quite astonishing. I think that was the most incredible moment in the Olympics in my lifetime. Usain Bolt's sprint. He, he did it again in, four years later in London, um, well, he of did, course. Yeah. But he kept, he just made it look so easy compared to everybody else. Mm. And it was all to do with his body language and his body shape. It was just born to do it. It was. And then at that time as well, in 2008, while Bolt was doing what he was doing on the track, Michael Phelps, <laughs> having appeared in the 2004 Olympics in Athens four years earlier, well, he reached his absolute peak. He won eight Beijing golds. Take a listen. You know, listening to these clips, it, it really just underlines the... Uh, there's nothing we can do about it, of course. It's been and gone now. But um, the absence of fans yep. at Tokyo yeah. were, yeah. were, you know, you cannot replicate that atmosphere. And the commentators, everything about it... It's euphoric, It's electric. It? Yeah. It's just... It, it's it's what the Olympics is all about. And, and that really just underscores how disappointing watching it without any fans was a few weeks ago in Tokyo. But, but that was an astonishing performance by Michael Phelps. We met him. Chris and I met him and interviewed him uh, when he came out here to open a, an Under Armour store a few years ago, 2017, I think it was, in Dubai. And um, What did he we, say about that particular moment? Well, he, he was satisfied with his eight golds in Beijing, but <laughs> yeah. then he was deeply disappointed with, I think he only won five or six in London, which was a, a complete disappointment for him, which meant that his original plan to retire after the London Games in 2012, he had to go back on it and come back and compete in Rio of to course. kind of right the wrongs of 2012. But it was just a great window into 
the perfectionist mind yeah. of Michael Phelps, where he actually said um, he would specifically train on Christmas Day, and um, he trained uh, every single day for five years straight, didn't miss a day. Wow. And he said that most of his rivals would take one day off. Yeah. So he said that his rationale was that when they took one day off, he was going ahead a day, and they were going back a day. So every single week, he would get two days ahead of them. And he, he would just build up this mental picture of being X amount of days ahead of his rivals. I mean, who needs a rest day yeah. if you're Michael Phelps? <laughs> I mean, I thought they were quite useful, but clearly not. It was just, it was a real, a real insight into the thinking, the thought process of a guy who, who made swimming and, and competing and winning gold medals his life's mission. To, right. to, to the detriment, probably, of, as he would admit, the rest of his life. Like, um, I think his relationships with people suffered as a result. You've got to be so single-minded mm. and so driven and so just completely focused and tunnel tunnel vision in the pursuit of what you're trying to do to be that great um meanwhile in tennis that year as well it's hard to imagine this was all in one year but it was this was one of sports all-time great rivalries blossoming the backstory to this was that Rafael Nadal had come out as a clay court sensation a few years earlier and had been winning French Opens but nothing else mm. he hadn't broken through on any other Grand Slam surface other than the clay of, of Roland Garros Roger Federer was the king of Wimbledon up until that year 2008 he'd won five consecutive titles at SW9 the previous two had both been against Nadal in the final. He'd beaten him in four and then in five sets. And then they met in 2008. And this is what happened. There's a new man at the head Nadal, of Max Tennis. Rafael Nadal. Six, four, six, seven, six, seven, nine, seven. Federer's magnificent run ends. Nadal is the top man. And I remember watching that match. I was here. Um, it was epic. It had everything. Nadal took a two sets to love lead. Federer made an epic comeback. They had one of the all-time great tie breaks. There were rain delays. By the time the match finished, 9-7 in the final set, it was dark. It was nearly dark. It was almost impossible to see the ball. And Nadal had beaten Federer. He had dis deposed him on his favourite court. And he'd officially turned the tables in their rivalry. And in doing so, he'd reached world number one. And he actually had a mental stranglehold over Federer for quite a few years after that. He beat him in the Australian Open the following year. And he started to dominate. Then, of course... A certain Mr. Novak Djokovic uh, yeah, yeah. would announce himself. I believe also 2008 was the year that Novak won his first Australian Open. Um, so that was just a really interesting time for men's tennis, uh, as that would become two, would become three. Andy Murray would have his say as well, uh, and tennis would, uh, would would launch maybe the greatest era that it's ever known. Um, final one for 2008, Tiger Woods. You mentioned so, and you asked the question, how did he do it? He'd sustained a um, broken or a torn cruciate ligament injury. And as a result, he'd fractured his tibia bone. Okay. Um, now, he was taking strong medication, strong painkillers to play through the pain of essentially playing with a broken leg. But despite that, it was his favorite golf course. It was a course that he'd had an enormous amount of success on in the US Open. Um, Torrey Pines was the venue. And tiger was just there or thereabouts for the entire tournament he reached the 18th hole of regulation play the 72nd hole of the tournament and he needed to make birdie to force a playoff with a guy called rocco mediate he had a 15 foot putt to force that playoff and it goes down as one of his most iconic moments expect anything different 
Ratko, you've got Tiger for 18 holes tomorrow. There's a recent documentary on HBO, Tiger, where Steve Williams, who was his caddy at the time, his yeah. long-time caddy, they've subsequently fallen out. But he was saying that doctors were calling Tiger saying, you can't play, you just cannot play, you, you, you could do long-lasting damage. But it was because it was Torrey Pines, he was just winning everything back then, and he knew that even on as, as compromised as he was, he would still have a great chance to win the tournament. And sure enough, he got into a playoff and he beat Rocco Mediate the following day in the playoff to win his 14th major of course that was the year before his scandal which broke in 2009 and it would take him 11 years to win his 15th so at 32 he'd won 14 majors and he added a 15th at the age of 43 and so far he's on 15 this has been one of the best sporting years in time capsule I feel I, I think, like that you've I, this mentioned is, this is the best told us about. Yeah, this, this for me is the number one sporting year in time capsule since 1980 I challenge anyone to name a stronger one. Chris might say 1999. We all know why, though. Even United I know trouble. why, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, just as across the board with so many stories, so many stars, crazy feats, um, and so many of the iconic kind of characters doing what they were doing best. Off Scripts Time Capsule. Rating and ranking the years that have shaped us. Thank you for listening to The Time Capsule. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do, if you've got a moment, give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.